0: We're going to be in Mark 1, reading verses 14 through 15 this morning. There's two verses that we're going to be going through during our time together. Now, as we're turning there, usually we like to start off our service or our, our time of study with like some sort of illustration that maybe helps us understand kind of the larger point uh, that we're going to be talking about. But that's not what we're going to be doing today. Instead, I kind of want to challenge you to do a little bit of a thought experiment. On your own, right where you're at, I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about that if somebody came up to you and asked you, like, hey, I want you to take everything that you know about Jesus, about his teachings and his ministry, and I want you to think about what that was all about, and I need you to summarize it for me in one sentence. Right? Like this thing has got to fit in within like a the artist formerly known as a tweet or right, whatever it is called now, like 160 characters or less. I want you to summarize for me what the ministry of Jesus is all about. Or another way to think about this is, like, what was the main point of Jesus' teaching? So I want you to take a second, maybe if you're a note-taker, write that down. uh, I would encourage you, maybe turn and talk to the person next to you and tell them how you would summarize those. Or if both of those options make you uncomfortable, just sit right where you're at, take a couple seconds, and think about to yourself how you would summarize those teaching. The reason that we do kind of this exercise where I want to, to think about this is because the way that you summarize the teachings of the ministry of Jesus actually says a lot about what you think about who Jesus was and the work that he came to accomplish here on this earth, right? And it also tells you a lot about what you think that the gospel is. Uh, asking you that question is essentially the same thing as asking you, like, hey, can you explain the gospel to me? And, and I would guess that the answer that if we were to pass on a microphone and that everyone in the room did their answer, that we would have a lot of different answers from different people in the room. Some of you may have thought about things like Jesus' teaching is all about how to love other people. Maybe it's all about how we love God Jesus' teaching are about uh, how to be forgiven of our sins. They're about how to live our best life today. They're about loving our enemy. Right? There's any number of answers that we could give to this question. And whatever answer you gave actually tells you something about who you think Jesus is and what his ministry was really about. And and what we're going to be doing today is taking a look at that. We're going to look at the way that Mark describes or or summarizes Jesus' in his ministry in the own words of Jesus, right? What we're going to look at today in this passage is the very first written words that we have coming from the mouth of Jesus as he is launching and establishing his ministry. So if you're in like military or Marine Corps circles, you might think of this as like the bottom line up front, right? The bluff. This is what Jesus wants you to know about his ministry. If you miss everything else, the first things out of his mouth that he wants you to understand is what we're going to be hearing about today. So with that in mind, let's turn and take a look at our passage Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which are going to be up on the screen behind me. And they read, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So going back to our question from earlier, here it is. This is how Jesus summarizes his own ministry. This is what he says the time is about. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is hand. anchor. Waiting is over. The thing that you've been hoping for and desiring for is here. It is come in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, that has come to establish a kingdom. Now, this idea is referenced by Jesus more than any other idea throughout the Gospels. In the Book of Mark alone, which we're going to be studying over the next couple of months, we're going to see this idea of kingdom come up 17 different times in only 16 chapters. So for those of us who are mathematically challenged, that is slightly more than one time per chapter, on average, that so we're going to see this idea of kingdom come up during our study of the Book of Mark. And, and I think what we're going to see is that what Jesus has to say about what this kingdom is is a little bit different than how we often think of this idea in many Christian circles, right? Like, when we think about the core or the essence of Jesus' ministry, or we try to describe the good news of this kingdom to someone, we might describe it in this way. We might say the kingdom of God is heaven. It's this far-off place that is separated from where we are currently— and in order to get there, we have to recognize that we have done things that were not the right things that we were supposed to do, and, and that by doing those things in some way, we seem to, like, have made God mad, uh, or for some reason, he's, like, isn't super happy with us, right? But if we believe in Jesus, we don't have to be punished for our sins, right? We kind of get out of jail free the heart, we pass, go, we collect $200, we go straight to heaven when we die, right? Some. From this earth, we're going to go to heaven, and we're not completely sure what we're going to do with the event. Right? We're going to have, like, you know, like, who we of going to Some of us are like, I have the do dogs in heaven, I'm going to do dogs there, we love that they're there, right? Others of us are like, we're just going to float around on clouds and play a harp. Uh, I don't know, like, you get taught how to play a harp when your are like, into heaven, or you it. You know, it's like you know, the matrix. To like to work, your brain. The idea is, like, unfortunately, these the of your life, or some of you who may not have been to church in life, you may think of some of these images or ideas when you think about what the ministry of Jesus was really all about. But my hope is that what we're going to see today and what Mark wants to show us is that this isn't what the gospel is about at all, at least not in its totality. Right? What Mark wants to show us in the passage today is that this definition of the gospel of this not being punished for our sins so we can go to some far away place where we're going to exist for eternity doing we're not sure uh, quite what fails to represent or describe the immensity of the work that God is actually doing through Jesus. And it also fails to address some of the very real barriers that both we ourselves and the audience, the Roman audience, those believers, Gentiles in Rome. It fails to address some of the barriers that they would have faced when thinking about this idea of this kingdom that Jesus says he came to establish. So my hope today is that what we recognize is that the true gospel is so much more can call than some of these big hollow ideas that we have about what Jesus came to do. And that it's something to be celebrated because it is far better and it far surpasses many of the ideas that we have about Jesus' ministry. Now ultimately what Mark wants to do for the text that we're studying today is to cause us to recognize and anticipate the promise that Jesus actually fulfills. You see, Mark wants to move us from our dissatisfying, confident-shaking, and ultimately dangerous misperceptions about the gospel, and he wants to move us to a settled confidence in the kingdom that Jesus has established and is in the process of establishing. He wants to answer the questions really, what is the kingdom of God and why should we regard it as gospel, or in other words, why should we say that the kingdom of God is good?" And then he wants to tell us how we should respond. If we know that Jesus has come, he says he's established a kingdom, and he says it should be good news for us, then there's some sort of response that we should have to that. And Mark wants to make it very clear for us what that response should look like to the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. Now, the way that Mark is going to answer these uh, questions for us is he's actually going to reveal to us three different ideas or three different things about this kingdom that Jesus came to establish. And the first thing that Mark wants to show us is that God's kingdom is the fulfillment of time. Now this is kind of a weird phrase, we don't really think about time as being something that's we think of time as being something that is past, right? We count the passing of time or the passing of days, but we don't really think about it being full. So we can hear this idea and kind of wonder, what is Mark saying Really, what is Jesus saying when he talks about that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, what Jesus is talking about here when he says the time is fulfilled is he's really saying, like, the time has come. It is here, the promises that you have been waiting for, they have been fulfilled. The promises have been answered. They have come into their fruition in my coming, the person of Jesus. And so that causes us to ask the question, well, then what are the promises that have been fulfilled? with the coming of Jesus that it caused time to reach its fullness in his arrival. And, and while this is a big idea, I'm you know, to, to summarize it for us in just a couple sentences that you're going to see up on the screen. Now, what we can summarize this idea, the promises that Jesus is coming to fulfill as is that God, through his sovereign reign, yeah. offers big citizenship big. to his kingdom, which he established through his chosen kingdom. And that this king brings salvation to God's people through judgment, and is working to renew all of creation by freeing it from its enslavement to sin and sin effects. In this kingdom, God's people experience reconciliation with God and with each other, and one day, God will come down to dwell with and rule over his people and give rid of creation for all of them. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says the fullness of time has come. He's saying the promises have been fulfilled in my coming. He's saying all of these things that you have been told throughout time, throughout the nation of Israel, all the promises that we traced throughout the Old Testament have reached their fullness, their fruition in me, in my coming. And this is what it is going to look like. This is the work that I am doing. This is what I have come to accomplish. We see this if we go all the way back to the beginning, looking at Genesis one and two. We see back in Genesis that God makes all of creation, and then as its pinnacle, as the crown jewel of His creation, God puts Adam and Eve, humans, in this garden that He has made, and He puts them there and He gives them a job that they should do, which is to take care of the garden. To cause it to flourish, to multiply, and ultimately to exercise dominion or rulership over all of the earth. But what he tells them is that this isn't their own dominion, this isn't their own kingship or rulership that he wants them to be exercising. But instead, they're supposed to be reflecting the dominion or the reign of God. That God is actually exercising his rule through his chosen human rulers in order to bring about the flourishing of all creation. This allows us, the humans, to be able to reflect the image of God to his creation and to glorify him by bearing his likeness. But as we continue on just a few pages after we get this creation account, in Genesis 3, we see that the humans mess it all up. Right? They don't do what it is that God told them to do. They don't serve as vessels through which God exercises his rule. But instead, they attempt to exercise their own rule by rejecting and going directly against the reign of God in their own lives. And what we see is that by doing so, they bring sin into the world with all of the brokenness and the effects and the consequences of that sin. We see the first evidence of death as God has taken an animal and used those skins to cover Adam and Eve in their shame. We start to see the presence of suffering coming within the promises of the curses that are given to Adam and Eve. We see that all of creation is actually enslaved underneath this sin. It's going to be spending this time until it reaches its fullness, longing to be set free from this enslavement. We start to see brokenness in the relationship that exists between the human. Adam blaming Eve for what is going on. Strife right. arising in the relationships, leading to the death between Cain and Abel. And then ultimately, we see the separation from God as Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, no longer able to dwell with God and walk with him in the garden during the pool of the day. But in the middle of all of this brokenness, we see that God gives Adam and Eve a promise. And this promise that a human is going to come and they're going to undo all the damage that has been done by the sin. And ultimately, this human is going to come and he's going to restore all of God's creation. He's going to overcome the sin, destroying it at its source by crushing the head of the serpent. But we also see that the serpent is going to suffer in the execution of their work. They will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will first strike this chosen human being So here in Genesis, we start to get this blurry picture or this glimpse of the good news of this kingdom that is coming. Even in the middle of this tragedy, as sin and brokenness come into the world, bringing with it all of the devastation that we experience on a day-to-day basis, we get the hope of this blurry picture of this snake-crushing human that is going to come. And then as the Old Testament continues, we see this promise or this picture of this one who is to come in the kingdom that they are bringing become more and more clear. As we fast forward a little bit more, we get to the person Abraham, who God gives another promise to. That through Abraham's line and lineage, God is going to create a great people. And that through this people that God rules over and has his reign over, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. We then pass forward again. We get to the story of David. And we see another promise coming from God that the people are longing and waiting to reach its fulfillment. And this promise is that through specifically David's line, which is a subset or a line within Abraham's family. But through this line of David, God is going to bring this king who is going to establish a kingdom. And that kingdom is never going to end. That king is going to reign eternally forever over God's people. We then fast forward a little bit more. And the picture becomes more and more clear as we turn to the prophet Isaiah. And we see the promises that God gives to his people through this prophet. Through Isaiah, we see that God reveals that there is a human who is coming, sent by God, who will once again be from David's line, And that this human will be high and lifted up, but will first suffer greatly to reach this position of authority. He will be pierced and crushed because of the sin that Adam brought into the world and that we continue to live in. But that through this suffering, this chosen human is going to establish this eternal kingdom where he is going to rule. And within this kingdom, many people are going to be able to be counted as righteous. So we have all of these promises traced throughout the Old Testament with generation after generation after generation waiting for their fulfillment, waiting for the time when all of these promises are actually going to come into their full reality. We fast forward a little bit more to the book of Malachi, and we're told that before this chosen human king comes, there's going to be another that comes to prepare the way for the snake-crushing king. And then finally we fast forward again one more time to Mark chapter one, where we found ourselves last week, where we saw John the Baptist. The one who has promised to come and prepare the lay of this king. So now, here, we have Jesus saying, Think of all of the promises. Think of all of these things that you've been longing for. The slavery that you've been longing to be free from. The suffering that you've been longing for to pass away. The brokenness of this world. You've been waiting for someone to come who is going to conquer it. Put it to rest eternally. in rule over God's chosen people. Well, that time is now at- Hand. The time for that is fulfilled. Because Jesus is the one who comes as fully God and folded in to be that human ruler that Adam and you and I were ultimately intended to be, but failed to fully be. He is the promised king from the line of David, who comes to establish the kingdom. Without him, and he is the same crushing seed of the one who will undo all the damage and brokenness that sin has brought into the world and who frees and restores all of creation. This is what we are talking about when Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is not that we're going to escape this earth one day and go off to this faraway land that we don't really know that much about and we're not really going to have that much to do, but instead that he has come to the place that sin has broken and that he's actually going to restore it, that he's going to gather people to himself and he's going to be renewing that people, teaching them how to live within this kingdom, and that someday we're going to see an even clearer picture of that kingdom than we see today. When he returns, he comes back once again, not taking his people out of this earth to some faraway land, but bringing heaven and God's rule and reign and authority down to his people here in a renewed creation where he will be our God and we will be his people. Now we say that, but I think we can often find that to be a part of a Right? Like we look around the world that's around us, and we say, "It doesn't look like that kind of kingdom, Jesus." But you say the kingdom of God is at like, hand. Hey, you're saying it is here. You're saying the kingdom has come. But look around. This doesn't look like a victory, Jesus. But like we're still suffering here. People are still dying. There is still brokenness. There is still sin in the world. All of creation is not yet freed by this enslavement. It doesn't feel like God is reigning. It feels like sin continues to reign in our lives and throughout the world. How could it possibly be that the kingdom of God is at hand if we look around and we still experience all of this brokenness? Well, Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, provides us an incredibly helpful picture that can help us reconcile Jesus' announcement about the kingdom with our current reality. In 1 Corinthians 15, when discussing the realization of the promises of Christ, those promises coming into their full completion, we see Paul describe Jesus as, quote, the first fruits of these promises. Now what Paul is showing us by using that phrase is that Jesus and the kingdom that he established are coming just like the early stages of a plant or a fruit tree. Right, a fruit tree. You don't just walk outside one day, throw a seed in the ground, throw a little bit of water on it, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, and have a tree that is just full of fruit that you can go out there and pick. Right? For some of us, we go out there, and we put a seed into the ground, and we go out and we never see anything come up out of the ground anyway. Right? And that's my wife and I's personal experience when it comes to planting things uh, here in Northern Virginia. But for the rest of you that have a little bit more skill than we do in this act of gardening, you put a seed in the ground. And you wait. And over time, you start to see just this little shoot that comes up out of the ground. The first fruits of a promise that will later be fully fulfilled. And what Paul is telling us is that this is Jesus, right? When we plant the seed and we see that little shoot pop up from the ground, the tree is still there. Like there is a very real plant that is very present and existing within reality. But there is also the reality that at some point in time in the future, that seed is going to continue to mature and grow. And it's going to be a lot better than the little taste of it or that little picture of it that we have right now. And that's what Paul wants us to understand about the Jesus of God. is that Jesus is the first fruit. He's a picture. He's that little shoot that's poking up out of the ground. The teaching of God is absolutely present in here, in the person, in the work of Jesus, and the people that he he is gathering to himself. But that there is also a time when that little shoot is going to be a full, beautiful, blossoming tree that is going to bear all of the fruit that we long and hope for one day. Now, while Jesus is the first fruits of creation, there is going to a time when we are able to reap the full fruits of all of creation, when all of the suffering that we experience fully passes away, when sin is no more, when death is no more, and Jesus fully brings the reign of God down onto the earth and is able to establish God's kingdom in its completeness and its fullness here with us. This is what Mark wants us to see about the kingdom, is that it comes at the fullness of time, both at Jesus' first coming as he establishes the kingdom and gives us a picture or a taste of that kingdom that is to come. This is what Jesus' ministry is all about. It gives us a picture of the hope that we have that we will one day see realized when we see the fullness of time during Jesus' second coming. All of the healings that we see from Jesus are just a foretaste or a firstfruits of the healing that we are going to see when we are free from the effects of sin and death. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Paul says, is the first fruits of the resurrection that his people are going to experience when death is no more and we're able to dwell with God eternally forever. His teachings are a first fruit of the way that we are to relate with God and with the way we are to relate with each other within this kingdom so that when the kingdom does come down, we understand what that kingdom looks like and how we are able to live in it. Jesus himself as we continue through the book of Mark is going to use very similar language. He's going to say that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, small at first, but if you wait with patience for the realization of that kingdom, it is going to reap an abundant harvest. This is what Mark wants us to see about God's kingdom. Is that it comes at the fulfillment of time, as all of the promises of God reach their fulfillment in Christ about his first coming and the coming that we still await. Now, the second thing that Mark wants us to see about God's kingdom is that it is for all people who repent and believe. It's no accident that Mark decided to provide us a geographic context for where this proclamation of God's kingdom is coming. We see, as we look in the text, it says that Jesus came into Galilee in order to make this pronouncement. Now, I don't expect a lot of us to be super familiar with like the geopolitical as well as the geographic landscape of the nation of Israel at the time this is going on. So I'm going to provide us a little background or context on this. Right? Jerusalem is really that epicenter of Jewish cultural, religious, and political life. Anyone who is anyone that wants to accomplish something of real meaning, that wants to start a movement, that would be launching a kingdom, would be starting it in the city of Jerusalem. we can all understand this, this is Northern Virginia individuals, because it's very much the equivalent of like a Washington, D.C. Right? Like if you're trying to run for political office, you're probably not going to go to Fargo, North Dakota and announce that I'm here to be the president. Right? I have come. The kingdom has arrived. Instead, you might come to somewhere like Washington, D.C., that epicenter of a lot of our political life, and say that I'm starting something new, that there's a new government, a new kingdom that is coming that I have brought with me. But Mark says that that's not what Jesus is doing. Instead... If you were to look at a map of Israel, you would see that Jesus went to the region that is literally as far as you could possibly get from Jerusalem while still being within the region that is occupied by the Jewish people. It is even further than we saw Jesus going into the wilderness last week. Jesus would have had to leave Jerusalem, go out into the wilderness, and then keep going even further north to go as far as he possibly could away from the epicenter of Jewish life. If you're trying to start a new kingdom within ancient Israel, this is not the place that you would likely do it. So what does Jesus want us to see from this? Well, I think we need to consider the audience that Mark is writing to here. Mark isn't writing to to Jews. He's not writing to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, they would have expected that the kingdom was for them. They've been getting these promises from throughout time that through the line of Abraham, God was going to gather a people to himself and that he was going to send a king to reign over this people. And so if if this book was being written to Jews, they would say, well, yeah, this is obviously for us. Like, we are the people of the kingdom. But for a Gentile audience reading this in Rome, it would be very easy for them to read this account of Jesus' ministry and, and ask the question, is the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming really for us? I mean, we're not a part of the line of Abraham. We're not in the line of David. We're not in Jerusalem or Israel. We're as far away as we could possibly get from that culturally, politically, geographically. Can we really take part in the good news of this kingdom? And what Mark wants to show us and what Jesus is highlighting by making this pronouncement in this backward region of Galilee is that, yes, the kingdom of God is for you. The kingdom of God is for you, Jewish people, both in Galilee as well as in Jerusalem and throughout the nation of Israel. But the kingdom of God is also for you, Church of Rome, Ephesus, Philippi. The kingdom of God is also for you, church in Afghanistan, Somalia, Dumfries, Norfolk, right? The kingdom of God is for all who come and fulfill the requirements that are needed for entry into the kingdom. And those requirements are what Jesus points out to us at the end of this passage, that the kingdom of God is available for all who repent and believe. This is the good news of the gospel. That it is available to all, and all that is needed is to repent and believe. But we need to understand what it is that Jesus is asking his followers to do in order to gain admittance or citizenship like David highlighted at the beginning of our service into this kingdom that he has brought down with them. What does it mean for his followers to repent and believe? Well, this idea of repentance is this idea of a change of mind or purpose. What we believe is translated in another way this idea of having a confidence in. And so, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is for all, both those in Jerusalem and Galilee and Rome. As long as those who come have a change in their mind and purpose in the way they think about what is required to be a part of that kingdom and what it looks like to be a part of that kingdom, and instead of trusting what they've been relying on to get that, into that kingdom in the past, they rely upon what I've become and what i tell them to do during my ministry here. And the same is true for us today. That Christ offers us citizenship. In this renewing kingdom that he has established and will one day fully establish when we reap the full fruits of it, if we place our confidence in the person and the work of Christ. Changing our minds of the way we think about what is really required for us to have our salvation, what is really required for our flourishing, what is really required for us to live our best life during our time here on this earth, and instead put our confidence in the work that Christ has done and what He tells us about all of those different things. It means. Putting confidence in the fact that turning away from our former way of living and the former hopes that we had in our ability to provide for our own salvation And to maximize the life that we are living in order to gain the most satisfaction that we can in the short time that we have. It means changing our mind about all of those things and instead having confidence or faith in what Jesus tells us, which is that He has something so much better for us if we will submit to the work that He has done, placing our faith in Him and following what He has told us to do. Now, finally, one smart shows us. But the kingdom of God is available to all who repent and believe. He shows us one last thing, which is that the kingdom of God is formed through suffering. It's so interesting how Mark chooses to open this section of verses within this passage. If we look at the very beginning at verse 14, the first thing that Mark chooses to tell us is that after, or that this, this came after John was arrested. Right, so last week we spent a lot of time talking about John the Baptist, this one who came to prepare the way for Jesus, this Elijah-type figure who came to declare the coming of this king and was preparing the hearts of the people so that they would be ready to accept this king and recognize him once he does arrive. And then we see that Jesus comes, and he says, the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. I'm starting this kingdom, and it is at work. So it's so interesting that the very first thing that Mark tells us about that kingdom is that its most prominent citizen immediately gets arrested. Rather, if you are starting a political or a cultural movement, you wouldn't do it by having the most prominent, most identifiable uh, individual within that movement, the spokesman of that movement, that people would recognize and say, he is the one that's talking about what is to come. You wouldn't have that guy get arrested right. by the powers that are currently in authority. Right? This doesn't look like much of a kingdom. I mean, how can you say that the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus, if the Roman authorities, so is a Roman, he doesn't have the authority your most prominent followers. But what Mark wants us to start to understand is that this isn't a flaw within the kingdom, but instead it's the pattern for how this kingdom worked is going to be accomplished. You see, the same barrier that we often have to coming to the kingdom, which is us looking around and saying, it doesn't really feel like God is reigning right now, is the exact same barrier that his followers are going to experience throughout Jesus' ministry. We talked about in this series or titled it is this idea of seeing Jesus with new eyes. Seeing Jesus in a way we may not have seen him before. Seeing him for who he really is. And this is something that his followers struggled to do. As we're going to see later on in Mark's account one of the most difficult barriers that Jesus' followers had to overcome was this idea that he was going to go and that he was ultimately going to suffer and die. We're going to see later that Peter, right this gospel account is really Peter's words written through Mark which recording all of Peter's teachings we're going to see that Peter himself right after he professes who Jesus is he finally gets it he says Jesus you surely are the son of God the Messiah who has come in the fullness of time Jesus says yes but I'm a and Peter says absolutely not like Jesus I know that you're still new to this whole kingdom building thing right like that's not how kingdoms work right the leaders don't die Because if you die, there is no kingdom. But what Jesus wants us to to understand, and what Mark is starting to prepare us to really comprehend as we continue throughout our time in this book, is that that is exactly how Jesus accomplishes the work of his kingdom. And now, this is both a a challenge and a comfort for us as we seek to participate in this kingdom. Now, it's a challenge to us, and that it reveals to us that suffering is, is a pattern, it's a paradigm that we are to follow. The pattern of the cross is the pattern that we, the followers of Jesus, the follower of the cross, are likely going to see within our own lives. And it takes a lot know. of different forms it's to audio stuff. We can see suffering the way that we traditionally think about it although don't we know. don't care. Like, 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 this one is often in our It's like, it's like being a more correct, and doing that something weird, like that. that. individual space really? for being <clears throat> followers of Jesus <clears throat> comforting this teaching is going to be for the audience, the church in Rome, in just a couple of years from the time that it was rightly written, when they find themselves suffering under the reign of Nero, the and they recognize that this isn't something that places them outside of the kingdom, but that it affirms that in the past that Jesus has already walked before them. Secondly, it challenges us in that we experience suffering in a small way as we deny our own fleshly sinful desires and instead choose to follow in obedience after Christ. And it affirms that that is okay because it is following once again in the path that Jesus has already laid out before us. We would be lying if we said that in some way, for at least a short period of time, many of the sins that we so often finding ourselves falling into and engaging weren't in some small way rewarding for a short period of time. Right? If we didn't derive some sort of pleasure or reward, at least in the short term, for sin, we wouldn't do it. We know that it's not the right thing to do, and so if we knew that it wasn't the right thing to do, and we also knew that it wasn't really good for us, then we wouldn't do it. But we often think that the pleasure that it brings, no matter how fleeting and no matter how damaging, is worth it in the short term. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that the suffering that we undergo as we deny ourselves walking in those fleshly ways, that short-term pleasure, and instead have our eyes firmly fixed on Him, are following after the pattern of the cross that He Himself has established. And then finally, He wants us to be challenged and recognized that the followers of Christ are going to suffer in the same way that he suffered by laying down themselves and their lives, their preferences, their desires, potentially their hopes and dreams for the work of the kingdom and for those who are within it. He wants us to be challenged as we look around and think about the way that we are sacrificially serving those who are around us within the kingdom. Whether that is those here within the body at Pillar, Whether that's your spouse and your children at home. He wants us to recognize that the suffering that we often face, the tension that we often feel when we know that we are called to live in a certain way and do a certain thing and serve our spouse or our kids or those within the body in a certain way, and yet we so often don't want to, he wants us to recognize that he understands how difficult that is and that he has walked that path before us and that it is worth it at the end and that we are following in and emulating the example that he has given for us on the cross because the kingdom of God is formed through suffering but we also can take great hope in this reality because I think that often we can find ourselves suffering from the brokenness of this world and we can ask ourselves is something wrong with me I mean, if Jesus came to establish a kingdom where there was no more suffering, where sin had passed away, where death had passed away, when all of this suffering came to an end, then surely if I am experiencing this great suffering, if I'm carrying this great burden, if I'm going through this great trial at this time, surely there is no way that I am resting in the kingdom of God. But what Jesus wants to say to us, and the way he wants to comfort us is by telling us that that's not the truth. That we can both be resting in a part of the kingdom of God now while enduring the sufferings that we experience and hoping and yearning for the day that all of those things pass away. Because what we see about Jesus is that he was not outside of the kingdom when he endured his greatest suffering on the cross. But he was at the peak, the height, the culmination, the climax of the work of this kingdom Fully establishing it. Going back to the book of Isaiah. When the Israelites were promised that the fullness of time was going to come. And there was going to be one who was high and lifted up. We are able to fast forward and recognize that the way that the kingdom was formed was by Jesus, in fact, being high and lifted up, not by being ascending to a throne, but instead being nailed to a cross where he was high and lifted up and mocked before his people as the king that they had rejected. But in doing so, he ushered in the fullness of this kingdom that we are now able to fully place our hope in, recognizing that the kingdom of God is at hand. The promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. The fullness of time has come and is going to come as he accomplishes and finishes his work of the renewing of all creation, bringing heaven down to us where we will one day dwell with him. And that we can have a citizenship into that kingdom if we only repent and believe in the work that he has done and then follow after his example recognizing that the suffering that we endure now is only for a short time and it is following in the pattern that he has laid before us for the way in which his kingdom is going to be established i think as we think about this there are a few different ways that we may be able to apply this to our own individual lives The pattern of this idea of the suffering being the way that the kingdom is established, it it challenges us in maybe re-looking at or re-identifying the hope that we have on what is really going to bring about the realization of the kingdom as we experience it now. We're going to talk about this in, in a few weeks, a little bit more in depth. But as we go into an election year, I think we would be remiss to not recognize and talk about and identify that while it's good to talk about some of these political ideas and wrestle with the way that our faith is lived out within the way that we vote and engage within this political realm, we have to recognize that the way that we engage with that, and regardless of who is elected as president or senator or congressman or whatever elected position, really doesn't matter when it comes to bringing about the realization of the kingdom as we experience it. Neither Trump nor Biden are going to usher in the kingdom as it is supposed to be. And so if our hope is placed in that and we want to legislate our way into the realization of the kingdom, then we are going to be disappointed and divided people because our hope isn't firmly placed in the kingdom that Jesus has already established. Secondly, I think the way that we apply this is that we look and we say, Jesus is offering citizenship to all who repent and believe. Have I repented and believed? some of us, our life looks like we've repented, but we haven't believed. Our entire hope for salvation is caught up in this idea of just living better, of doing better, of being better, of living by this impossible moral standard. And then when we find that we're unable to live up to it. We're devastated. We're broken. And we don't really know where to go with our pain. But what Jesus wants us to recognize is that you maybe have change the way that you look at the things that you're supposed to put your hope in in this life, but you haven't really believed what I have told you. You haven't believed that my work was sufficient, that my death on the cross was enough, that my blood being spilled and my body being broken was able to cover your sin and that you have the ability to actually rest in the work that I have accomplished because the kingdom of God is actually here in the person and work of Christ. And for others of us, we might think that we've believed, but we really haven't repented. You say, yeah, I believe that Jesus was real. I believe that there's a God. But I don't believe that that really requires anything of me. I don't really believe that I've got to respond or change or, or, or do anything. right? Instead, I, I believe that God is just loving and that a loving God would never allow his people to, to not be with him. Right, That if God is truly loving, he wouldn't require me to change what I'm doing or alter my life in any way. He would just allow me to do what I think is best, what makes me the happiest. Right? Wouldn't a loving God want me to be happy? And we've missed the fact that we do serve a loving God. And we see his love most clearly illustrated in this ongoing revealing of his kingdom. Because what we often miss is that The unfolding of this kingdom and its first fruits in Christ during his first coming and then its full fruitfulness in his second coming is the greatest picture of his love that we could ever possibly get. You see, because if Christ would have just come the first time bringing the fullness of the kingdom full form in the way that we are one day going to experience it during his first coming. None of us would have had the opportunity to experience acceptance and salvation in him, but we all would have been immediately subjected to the judgment that he is going to one day bring. But instead, what he did is he came and he beckoned us all to come and to repent and believe, to change the way that we are thinking about things and what our hope and our confidence is ultimately in in order to prepare us from the time when he is going to come and fully subdue everything under his own authority, whether it wants to be subdued or not. And so I encourage you today to think about, have you really recognized and anticipated the promises that Jesus actually came to fulfill? Have you recognized the work that he is actually doing and anticipated his second coming by heeding the words that he gives us here, by repenting and believing in his work on the cross, by recognizing that our ultimate hope can be in nobody but him and the work that he has accomplished through the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood and that we are able to partake as citizens in that kingdom if we only repent and believe. As we transition into our time of communion, we're going to have the opportunity to remember that this morning. To remember that we have the opportunity to partake in that kingdom because of the work that Christ has accomplished. So I encourage you that if you have repented and believed, if you have placed your faith in Christ and the work that he has accomplished on the cross and that you have the ability to partake as a citizen of that kingdom, then I encourage you to express that citizenship and remember the work of Christ by partaking with us today. But if you haven't made that decision, if you hear what we've talked about today and you recognize I haven't anticipated Jesus' second coming, I haven't repented and believed, then I encourage you just to let the components pass and instead spend this time really thinking about what would it look like for you to truly respond to the work that Jesus came to accomplish? What would it look like for you to partake in that kingdom work and to become a citizen of that kingdom and to repent and believe. we am going to invite the band up.